Well, good morning. Please do turn in your Bibles back to Romans 15. And I will say a short prayer for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to your perfect and inerrant word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would bless it to us. Lord, that we would be changed as we look at it together. Lord, may we be made more Christ-like. And may we love you more from everything that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how important you think unity is this morning. Maybe there's people in the church that you don't quite get along with, but it doesn't matter because there's people in every group that you don't quite get along with. If you look at the news this week, it's been full of discussions about unity. There's the EU summit that's been happening and the question of, will the EU member states be able to keep united with one another? Closer to home, there have been leaks from the cabinet at Westminster and counter leaks and all the rest of it. And the question of how united is the cabinet has come up. Even looking at something like the World Cup, there's been discussions of how are the teams working together? Are they actually united as a group? The world thinks that unity is key. The world thinks that unity is important to get anything done. But Jesus, in his ministry, said that unity wasn't just key, it was essential. That we couldn't do anything as Christians unless we were united. On the night before he was killed, Jesus took his disciples into the upper room and he taught them and he prayed for them. And he said these words, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he didn't simply teach that. He prayed for them as well. He said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And again, he didn't just pray for his disciples, but he prayed for all the Christians down the generations to us today when he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. For Christ, the unity of the church was not simply a nice thing to have because it made Sundays more pleasant. It was how the church was going to witness to the world that the gospel was true. If the church is united, it is saying to the world that everything Christ has accomplished is real. And if the church is not united, it is saying to the world that the gospel is false and is not worth believing in. It's that stark. And the passage that we have in Romans 15 is Paul giving those same truths and applying them to the situation in Rome and through that to us today as well. He's driving at the same point. Remember everything that Paul has said so far in the book of Romans. He laid out the gospel beautifully at the beginning. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ has come and he's paid for that sin upon the cross. He's explored that in the first 11 chapters. Not just how people are saved, but also who are saved. Jews 
and Gentiles, people from different backgrounds, are brought together. And then from Romans 12 onwards, he's been saying that this has a practical outworking. This changes the way you live, not just that you're saved, but it changes how you act Monday to Saturday as well. And then last time, we looked at Romans 14, where he brought up the issue of how do these people from diverse backgrounds actually live together? And he said that some of them were strong. They enjoyed their liberty. They enjoyed their freedoms that they have in Christ. And some people were weak. They'd grown up in a religious atmosphere, and it was hard for them to let go of some of the religious rules that they had grown up with. He said, how are they to come together? And now in our section this morning, he continues with that looking. How do the how do the strong Christians relate to the weak Christians? And he isn't saying that both are equal. He makes that very clear in verse 1. He says that the weak have failings, that he would like everybody to be strong like he is, that he wants everybody to have and enjoy the freedoms that they have in Christ, that Christ has won for them. But how are these two groups going to relate? How is the church going to be united? Well, there's two main points. Verses 1 to 6. Just look at it very briefly. He says it very strongly. He says, don't please yourself. Let's not please ourselves, verse 1. And then in verses 7 to the end, he says that we're to accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. So don't please yourself and accept one another. So first of all, don't please yourself. Paul is very concerned that people who have a freedom in Christ might think that they are free to do whatever they want, even if it hurts the poorer and the weaker Christians among them. He's not saying that you can just do whatever you like. You know this at home yourself. When people live to please them themselves, it causes all kinds of problems. I wonder if you've ever had the situation where you wanted to settle down for a movie with your family or maybe with a group of friends you've got over and you say, oh, that's fine, we've got Netflix, we've got 300, 400, whatever different films to choose from. I'm sure there's one that we can all agree on. So you start flicking through the films. Four hours later, <laughs> you're going, well, we can't agree on a single film that will please all of us. Could have watched two in the amount of time it took. Yeah, some of you are nodding, that's happened. But that happens in the church as well. People live to please themselves. They're not willing to give any ground to help other people. People church shop. They look for a church which has just the right music or just the right kind of style. They get upset if somebody in the church doesn't think exactly the way they think or doesn't phrase things in exactly the way that they want things to be phrased. When I was preparing for this, I found out about two churches in the United States who were both weak churches. And so they thought that they would combine and merge together because then they could struggle together. And struggling together is what they did. They agreed on almost everything except for the Lord's Prayer. One of them used the one that we've used this morning where they said, forgive us our debts. And another, the other church which came together used the version which said, forgive us our trespasses. And both sides thought they had great arguments for why this was the only way you could do it. And they ended up splitting apart again over that. And you can imagine how the local newspaper loved to herald that fact. It did. It carried the news that the two churches had split. 
One, so they could go back to their debts, and the other, so they could continue with their trespasses. That's not too far off the truth, though, is it? (laughs) Unwilling to bear with a weaker brother or sister in the faith. And the word bear there means to help carry each other's burden. It's not simply just put up with each other, but you bear with each other. So what do you do instead? Verse 2, each of you should, instead of trying to please yourself, please his neighbor. Now, Paul is not saying become a man pleaser, you know, become a people pleaser. Whatever they want, you just go along with it. No, he says that at the end of the verse, to build them up. So do things which are pleasing to them, which help to build them up in their faith and grow them in Christ-likeness. So it's not if somebody comes into a small group and starts talking nonsense about how the Bible is completely false. You go, well, I don't want to upset that person. I've got to please them because that wouldn't build them up in Christ. But if somebody in the church has a small disagreement with you, then you don't always need to fight it out, do you? You can put up with one another. And therefore, I'd like to challenge you this morning to think for a moment who in this congregation it is who you find it hard to love. Who annoys you and rubs you up the wrong way. Now, I'm not saying that at the end of this service, you go up to them and tell them that, right? Because <laughs> I, I don't want a queue of people for myself, right? Okay? Um, but I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think, okay, how would pleasing that person, how would loving that person change things? What would that look like? Maybe it would be a small start of just talking to somebody that you normally avoid. Maybe it's praying for them. Whatever it is, don't just listen to the sermon this morning. Think carefully about who or what group it is in the church that you struggle with, whose failings you can't bear, and do something about it before you leave this morning. Right? That's my request for you. And why do I make that request to you? Because of verse 3. Because Christ did not please himself. Christ, throughout the whole of his earthly ministry, did what his Father in heaven wanted. When you read the Gospel of John, it's almost a catchphrase with Jesus. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. My bread is to do the will of God who sent me. Jesus did not live for himself. It was not pleasing to Jesus when, what does it say? The insults of those who insulted God had fallen on him. It was not pleasing to Jesus when he was arrested in the dead of night and betrayed by one of his friends. It was not pleasing to Jesus when he was kept up all night and tortured and given a false trial. Jesus was not pleasing himself when he offered his arms and legs to be nailed to a cross. He did it for the benefit of others. And that is what we are called to as Christians. That is what Jesus says to us in his gospel when he says to us to take up our cross and follow him. It is dying to ourselves and living for others. Is that possible? Is it difficult? Yes, it is difficult, but it is possible. But Paul gives us two great helps in this. He gives us the scriptures and he gives us prayer. Look at that for a second. Verse 4, what does he, Paul say? 
Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, Paul has already just applied a psalm to Jesus and said this applies to him. And now he's saying to the rest of us, the whole of the scriptures, the whole of the Old Testament was written so that Christians can read them and do what? grow in endurance so that we can see the way that God has already acted in history for his people and take courage from that fact so that we can see all the ways that they point to Jesus coming and be encouraged by that as well and then he doesn't just simply give them the scriptures he also prays for them he says this wonderful prayer which calls for a total unity. That we are to be so united that it's as though we have one heart, one place of love between us. There are no divisions caused by hatred or disliking one another. And one mouth that will glorify God, that will sing his praises. Why? Because we follow Christ. That we are to be united so that we will worship and glorify God just as much as Christ himself did. And if we are not united, we do not glorify God. We must bear with one another. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, we must not live to please ourselves. The church, I know it's a cliche, but the church is not a cruise liner that you're on because you're having a nice time. I think there are times of moments of happiness and joy in the church. There certainly should be. But that's, as it were, not the point. The church is much more like a naval ship where we all have roles to play and work to do and to serve one another. And it cannot function unless we do that. So that's the first thing. Do not please yourself, but instead bear the burden with one another. So then we go very naturally then on to our second point, which Paul has said, which is that we are to accept one another. What does that mean, accept? Does that just mean that I look around and I see somebody else at church and go, oh yeah, that person's at DFC as well. They're at Dunfermline Free Church. No, it means they, we welcome them. We're glad that that person is there. We have joy in the fact that there's all these different people here at church this morning. Why do we do that? Because it brings praise to God. We welcome each other in order to pray, bring praise to God. Now, what's I think really interesting is the next two verses where Paul unpacks what that phrase means. First of all, he again uses Jesus as an example. Jesus accepted you. You know how rotten you are. <laughs> you know all of your failings, all of your faults. You know that all the things in secret that nobody else knows about. But despite all of that, Jesus has accepted you into his church. Well, if he's accepted you, you can accept other people. But how did Jesus do that? 
because he became a servant. He became, a, first of all, a servant of the Jews. That means that he came to serve the house of Israel, that he came to fulfill all the promises that God had made to his people in the generations past. He was to fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs. When you read the Bible, you look at the promises that are made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, all the forefathers of the Jewish people, Jesus came to fulfill those promises. What kinds of promises? Genesis 12. When God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's it. Jesus came to fulfill that promise that they would be a great nation, that they would be a people who are in relationship with God and would never fall out of it again. But then verse 9 goes on to say, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And again, we go back to Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham that when he blesses him, that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The point of God's plan all the way back from Abraham onwards has always been that by blessing one group of people down through history, that it would lead to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would come and fulfill all the promises to that one group of people, to Israel, yes? But by fulfilling those promises to Israel, all the other nations on the earth would be blessed, all the other nations of the earth would come into God's people and make them one people. And just in case we're in any doubt about that at all, Paul gives us these four examples from Scripture. Therefore, I praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. We sang that earlier from Psalm 18. It is when David, the king of the Israelites, is looking forward to the day when the true king of Israel will rule over all the nations. And Paul is saying... That time has come by the coming of Jesus. He is now the king and he's reigning over the nations. Again, we see in verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people coming from Deuteronomy. When, again, the people have just been rescued from the Exodus, they've just been brought out of Egypt, and, he, and Moses says to the people, to all the people who will listen, Praise God because of his salvation of his people. And Paul now says, that time has come. God's people have been truly rescued. It's time for all the people of the earth to come in and praise him as well. Again, praise, you, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again from Isaiah, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. These are not simply chosen as random phrases. It's not just as if Paul's gone through with a concordance and looked at all the times that it's talked about the Gentile nations in the Old Testament. These are chosen very specifically. There's one here from the Old Testament law. There's a passage here from the Old Testament Psalms. And there's one here from the prophets. In the, to the Jews, the Old Testament was divided into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings, the Psalms. And Paul is saying... Every part of the Old Testament is pointed to this moment when Jesus will come and make the Gentiles his people along with the Jews. 
And if you look again, they're from all the different eras of God's people as well. You have the Abrahamic promises. You have Deuteronomy, the promises made to Moses. You have the Psalms, the promises made to David. You have the prophets, the promises made to the exiles as well. Again, Paul is saying the plan throughout all of Israel's Old Testament history was that it would all come to Christ. And in him, the peoples of the earth would be saved and they would be one people, Jew and Gentile, together. Christ achieves what no politician or social activist or law has ever done. People of radically different backgrounds, people of radically different ethnicities and nationalities, of social classes, living together as a single group, in love and peace and harmony. That is what Christ has accomplished in his church. And that is why I'd like to say to any of you this morning who are not Christians, that it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your background is or the things that you have done. The question this morning is not, have I lived a good life up to this moment? The question is, do you accept Christ as your king who will rule over you. You're not a Christian this morning. You're a rebel against his reign. You're fighting against his rule. But Jesus has died for his enemies. And he offers terms of peace to you this morning and says to you, come into my kingdom. Accept me as your Lord and Savior and live in peace with all the people of God. That offer is made to you this morning. But if we are Christians, then we have to live this out. We have to welcome one another in the same way that Christ has welcomed us, no matter what the difference is in backgrounds or growing up, or whatever it might be. See, Paul prays at the final part here. This prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What's Paul saying? That God would fill us with joy? Yeah, absolutely. Peace with one another? Yes. Why? So that we may overflow with hope. So that we wouldn't ourselves simply know that Christ is reigning and that he has saved his people. But that hope in us would be so on display to the world, it would be as if it is overflowing from us into the community around us so that people know why Jesus has come. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we are given a snapshot of the throne of Christ. And it has these words to say, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one would ca could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, that is the guaranteed future that we are headed to. People from every tribe and nation and language gathered round, worshipping Christ as one people. The question is not, will it happen? 
The question is, will we witness that fact in the way that we treat one another this morning? Let's pray.